0: I titled the message today, The Death of Death. I don't expect that you all know what this is a reference to, but I do expect that some of you know what this is a reference to. I have a custom of naming many of my sermons after very famous books. So, The Death of Death and The Death of Christ is a top five book in Puritan literature by an author named John Owen, who was the number one premier best Puritan. So of all the Puritan authors, John Owen's theology is is probably the best that I would recommend or endorse, uh, with Richard Baxter being the worst. So if that's our range from a 10 to a negative 10, that's the framework we're working with on Puritan authors. And John Owen's book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, is one of his most famous books. Uh, This that, that book draws from this text, but in particular, his book is focused on the atonement of Jesus Christ. Today's sermon is not so much focused on the atonement as it is the resurrection and Jesus' victory over death by his death and resurrection. So, our title, The Death of Death. Our message has two points. The first is Already, Not Yet. We also have slides for these, but there is also a chart as well that is repeated multiple times. Uh, So you can leave it on this chart for a minute. Um, Our our points are number one, already, not yet. And then point two is the glory of God in death's defeat. But there will be slides for those, so you don't have to get it all written down right this second. Point number one, already, not yet. The death of death has begun, but has not yet been completed. At the beginning of the service today, as I was discussing some current events, and I mentioned that today's sermon will relate to eschatology, and it will, and this is the reason why I've put this chart here. um, It's probably too small for you to see. It will go up in the app at some point, and you will be able to zoom in on it and see it more closely. But It's helpful to understand the three major positions which then have um, related positions which would actually be four different positions. But this chart uh, has premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism in order from top to bottom. And the chart next to it with uh, a timeline or a sequence of events that each position expects to take place. You might be wondering why are we talking about this right now? Why do we have an eschatology chart? Why are we talking about the end times? Well, our passage is talking about these things. Our passage gives a sequence of events. Our passage does not give a full detail. It does not give all of the details on any of these charts, but our passage does reference a few. Um, you can go to the next slide and we'll, that, that chart will reappear in the notes. So number one, already not yet. The death of death has begun, but has not yet been completed. This term that I have given for point number one, already not yet, is a term that belongs to a category known as inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology. That is the idea that the kingdom has begun, but it is not yet fulfilled. As it relates to our message today, the death of death has begun, but it is not yet fulfilled. It has not yet been fully Realized. Let's look in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There are many things in the eight verses, the eight uh, Yeah, eight verses that we're going to consider today that relate to both the already part and the not yet part. I was going to make those the two points of the message, point one being already, point two being not yet. But the passage didn't break down that way. It didn't line up that way. So we're just dumping that all in point number one because these things are commingled together. Events that have already taken place are side by side in the same verse, in the same section with verses or with events that have not yet taken place. So Christ is risen from the dead. That has happened and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. That all shall be made alive part has not yet happened. We're still waiting that. Final resurrection, that greater resurrection, that is still in the future. That is the not yet part. But we're considering first in verse 20, Christ being the first fruits. What is that? What is that talking about? Now, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In Christ's resurrection, his rising from the dead signals the beginning of the end. His life signals the beginning of the death of death. In other words, when Jesus comes out of the grave, if death were to be personified as a person, death sees Jesus rise from the dead and says, oh no, my time is going to come to an end. And I can see it because Jesus is alive. Jesus being the first fruits though, this expression first fruits is a farming metaphor a farming metaphor from the ancient Israelite agricultural system and its related sacrificial system. So think with me. When the harvest would come in, farmers planted his wheat or his grain or his corn or whatever they're, they're growing, the harvest begins to come in. The farmer brings the first portion of the harvest to the temple to give to God for a sacrifice. So calling Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection that Jesus is the first of the resurrected, given to God for uh, His glory, for His worship. Now we will unpack that more later, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There's something significant about Jesus's resurrection, but let's keep moving. Verse twenty-one. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So, Adam brings death, and Christ brings death to death. He brings an end to death by his death. So, we have death in Adam and life in Christ. Hopefully, as I'm reading this, you are thinking of other passages that are related to this, such as... What do you think someone, someone say it. What would be the premier other passage in the new Testament that is very similar to this in its reference of Adam and Christ? Well, we got Romans, right? Five. Thank you. Romans five. That was more difficult than it should have been. Hopefully more of you knew that and just were embarrassed to say it, but Romans five is the other passage. That speaks of both Adam and Christ as our representative heads, the heads of this uh, these two races of humanity. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Um, One commentator said of, of this: How can Christ's resurrection embody everybody else's resurrection? Jesus rose from the dead. How does that rising represent or embody everyone else's resurrection? Well, Paul's answer is that in the same way that the first human being, Adam, was both a historical individual and a representative of his uh, progeny or his ancestry or his lineage. So Christ, um, not in a ancestral perspective, but as a corporate representative Both as a historical person and as a corporate representative, Christ is representing his people. In the same way that Adam represents his people as a historical real person and a representative head, so Christ represents his people as a real historical individual and as a representative head. In um, verse 12, there's something going on as well that is... um, this debate about the resurrection, which we spoke of last week, there's that party of people in the church in Corinth who are saying Jesus isn't uh, Jesus isn't rising from the dead because nobody rises from the dead, and we know this because well, resurrection is impossible. Well, Paul deals with that, and we dealt with it last week in the message. But this issue is being combated again in our text this this section. Verse 12 says, now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? These false teachers are saying in the church in Corinth, there is no resurrection. And one commentator says, some said there is no resurrection, but Paul replies, there's actually no death. Now, don't take that in a, a wrong direction to say that there is literally no death. It is that Christ's resurrection actually defeats death, which is the point of today's message. Each of the two atoms act as heads of humanity, the old and the new. Let's consider verses 23 and 24. But each one in his own order. Verse 22, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So there is this final resurrection, this greater resurrection that is going to happen. But there is a certain order, a a certain sequence, or for you people who like math, an order of operations. I haven't looked at math in a very long time, so I had to Google what the order of operations is, but apparently the acronym, uh, the, the, the saying of please excuse my dear Aunt Sally is useful for that, right? Is that right? Okay, so that means parenthesis, exponents, multiplication, division, addition, and subtraction. That's the order in which you're supposed to solve the math problems. There's a sequence. You have to get the order right. Well, we've been given an order of events, for this resurrection. Verses 23 and 24. So each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Jesus being the first fruits, he's the first one. Secondly, afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming, who are Christ's, who belong to Jesus at his coming. Then the third is, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Hence the charts. You can click on the next slide, bring the chart back. There we go. So if you can even see that, otherwise you can just hang tight and you'll find it in your phone in a few days. Um, so first you have Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection. And then secondly, those who are Jesus's people who are alive at his uh, coming. And then the third is Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. Now, this concept that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, speaking of an order of operations, should raise questions in your mind. If you've ever read the Bible, it should raise questions in your mind. If you don't have questions being raised in your mind, that's an indicator that you need to read the Bible more and you don't know as much about the Bible as you think you do. Within these passages, within any passage, there's references to other passages that are baked into the text that if you're familiar with the Bible, you should be thinking, wait a second, what about this? What about that? So, the question that should come to mind is, was Jesus the first one raised from the dead? Because here it says, the first fruits from the dead. Well, please answer my question for me. Was Jesus the first one raised from the dead? No. No. How many other people were raised from the dead before him? Do you have a, do, do you know, do you have a number? So Lazarus and what else? Yeah, Tabitha. So we have two. Keep going. There's more. Oh, there's a widow's son. The girl, centurion's son. yeah that was the centurion son or daughter I mean daughter keep going there's more all right well we'll give you guys a pass uh, four out of four out of ten Ain't bad. Um, so we have, in biblical order, we have the widow of Zarephath's son, raised by Elijah, in 1 Kings 17, 17. Secondly, the Shunammite widow's son, raised by Elisha, 2 Kings four thirty two. Thirdly, the man whose corpse touched Elisha's bones. This is a lesser-known story, but it's in the book, 2 Kings four thirty two. Uh, next, fourth, the widow of Nain's son, who was raised by Jesus in Luke seven eleven. Fifth, we have Jairus's daughter raised by Jesus in Mark five thirty five. Next, we have Lazarus raised by Jesus in John seven thirty nine. Next, we have many saints, which we don't even know how many that is, but that's referenced in Matthew twenty seven fifty two. After Jesus's death, many saints came out of the tombs. Raised by the power of God. So there's more than 10, but these are, well, I'm giving you 9 plus the 10th being Jesus himself. Um, After these many saints, then we have uh, Tabitha or Dorcas raised by Peter in Acts 9, 940. And then we have Eutychus, my favorite Eutychus. You remember Eutychus from Acts 20, verse 9? He's sitting in a window as Paul is preaching. Long into the night, and Eutychus falls asleep because Paul's sermon is going so long. It went even longer than my sermons, and he, he stayed awake longer than some of you. And then he falls asleep as it approaches midnight, falls out of the window, and dies. And Paul <laughs> raises him from the dead. So, Tabitha, Dorcas raised by Peter. Eutychus, raised by Paul in Acts 20. By the way, you if you ever want a short book on preaching or how to preach, there's a a book called Saving Eutychus. The gist of it is preaching sermons that are like a little bit more interesting than um, (laughs) keep people awake. Um, So what does it mean that Jesus is the first fruits of what is raised from the dead? If he's not the first one raised from the dead, there were at least there are these nine other instances. And one of those instances involves many raised from the dead. So there's lots of other people raised from the dead before Jesus well, Tabitha and Eutychus are both after Jesus' resurrection because that's the book of Acts. But nevertheless, what, what, how, does, how is Jesus described as the first fruits? Well, the answer is that there's a qualitative difference between Jesus' resurrection and the other nine examples. It's not about quantity. It's about quality. It's not about timing. It's about the quality of the resurrection. Can you think of a difference between these people's resurrection and Jesus' resurrection? Yeah, Jesus didn't die again. All the other people died again. That's the difference. That's the meaningful difference. And that's what makes Jesus' resurrection the first fruits of this better resurrection, the greater resurrection, the final resurrection, See, these people who all died and raised, they died again. They're going to have to get raised again for real this time with the same type of resurrection that Jesus got the first time. So that's the distinction that hopefully we're able to all come to recognize. So Jesus's greater resurrection is the first. He is the first fruits of this final resurrection eschatological resurrection. All of the other resurrections end in death, but Jesus's ends in eternal life. Well, life in the presence of God in his final resurrection. Um, So first, we have Jesus being the first fruits, uh, or verse 23. Each one is in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming. So those who are alive and remain at Jesus's coming, then they will experience the same type of resurrection that Jesus experienced. Then we know from other passages that after those who are alive and remain, then the uh, dead will rise as well. Um, Then we have uh, last, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. Now, If you've read the Bible much, you're like, wait a second. He just skipped a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, he did. This is where the charts are helpful because you see on the left side, you have the cross there. And then the little red square thing with the fire above it, that represents Pentecost. And then there's a big gap. And that gap in the top one says church age. And then The middle one, it says tribulation, and then under that church age, society progressively improves. Then under the the bottom one here, it says tribulation is symbolic. Church age, society progressively decays. And then you have this blue thing, the blue thing with the cloud, and that refers to the return of Christ. And then the top one, it has the three little ones with, with the blue and gray all together. Tribulation underneath of that, then millennium, then eternal state. And so like there's there are these more there're more things than just what are listed here. When you go to other places in scripture you will find these other events described. So how does that work or why is that the case? Well, one commentator answers it this way. He says Paul's immediate concern in this passage is not to establish precise time intervals but to show how Christ's resurrection sets in motion a sequence of events that will culminate with the complete overthrow of all hostile powers opposed to God, including death, which entails the subjection of all things to God the Father. Let me reread that. Paul's immediate concern in this passage is not to establish precise time intervals, but to show how Christ's resurrection sets in motion a sequence of events that will culminate with the complete overthrow of all hostile powers opposed to God, including death, which entails the subjection of all things to God the Father. So on our charts, death being defeated takes place on the far right. You see the orange and like gray, black, whatever, like the the two things that are parallel to each other in sequence. That's where death is defeated. But there's a bunch of other events between these. So Paul is not concerned with giving us the full scope of it. This is one of the things you have to keep in mind about biblical hermeneutics or biblical interpretation. The question is, what's the point in this passage? The point in this passage is not to give us a complete picture of everything, but rather just to give us pinpoints or big ideas. And those big ideas support his main point, which is that Jesus defeats death. So if you're like, wait a second, where does the, how does the Antichrist fit in here? Well, he's not talking about that right now, so don't worry about that. That's not the point of this text. Moving on, point two, you can go to the next slide now. The glory of God in death's defeat. The glory of God in death's defeat. So if point number one is speaking about already not yet, this death has, the defeat of death has begun, but death will be fully and finally defeated at the end that's where we're going. That's where this message even is going. Uh, verse twenty-five. We'll read that now. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he put all things that he who put on, all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all. In all, So first, let's consider verse 25. It says, He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. This is a reference to Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Now, before we get off into that, let's consider for a second enemies of God. Are you an enemy of God? You're either a friend of God or an enemy of God. If you are not a Christian, you are an enemy of God. You need to be reconciled to God. You need to be born again. You need to believe in Jesus. You need to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus as the payment for your sins. That's how you go from being an enemy of God to a friend of God. That's how you go from being a child of the devil to a child of God. We're not all God's children. We're not God's child by virtue of existing Just because you have a pulse doesn't mean you're friends with God. No, you must be reconciled to God. And the way to be reconciled to God is through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, and receiving that payment that Jesus made for rebellious people like you and me. See, we have all violated God's law. We have sinned against God. And in our sin, we have fallen short of God's standard, God's glory, God's requirement of us. That's the reason why you have a guilty conscience. That's why you turn to all sorts of things to solve that guilty conscience, whether they be substances or anything else. Instead of repenting of our sin and trusting in Jesus to pay our sins, we try to... dull our pain or numb our pain to deal with that guilt that we we feel. Well, Jesus has dealt with our guilt on the cross. Jesus never once sinned and he died for sinners. He had extra credit, as it were. He had the virtue that we lacked in order to pay for the sins that we had committed because he had never committed any sins. And so for you to be reconciled to God, you must take his payment as your own. And that's how you are reconciled to God. That's how you go from being an enemy of God to a friend of God. So our text that says he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. That is speaking about the end times. That is speaking about him defeating all of his enemies. There's a reference to, yes, his reign that has begun. It is already, but it is not yet in that he has not yet put all of his enemies under his feet. So that means that if you're sitting here today and you're not a Christian, you still have a chance. There's still opportunity to make peace with the Lord. But if you do not make peace with the Lord, there will be a day where he makes you, his enemy, a footstool for him. The footstool reference is referring to this practice that ancient, uh, the kings would do back in the day. When they would take over a conquer uh, people, and we see some of this on um Videos coming out of the Middle East right now. When you defeat somebody, you put your foot on them as a sign of victory. So, this idea of the footstool is you know, you've got a king sitting in his throne. And if I had my wireless mic right now, I would be sitting in the chair and demonstrating what this would look like, because I'm sure you can't imagine without me actually doing it, someone sitting in a chair. So, the king is sitting in the chair and he's got his feet propped up on his enemy king that he just took over, that he defeated. That's the visual. It's completely humiliating for the loser. It's showing the loser's complete defeat. Now, in this scenario, I'm not sure if the king is alive or dead or if he's like in chains or what. But regardless, whether it's just a corpse or whether it's a a guy who's like kneeling and he's been made a living footstool. Either way, it is a sign of victory for the king who's won and a sign of shame and defeat for the other one. So what I'm saying is you have an opportunity right now to humble yourself before God, to be reconciled to him, to to change your team uniform from, from team Satan to team Jesus. You can do that now or experience the ultimate humiliation and shame at the final judgment when you are made in a footstool under Christ's feet. The Bible speaks in this level of dichotomy there's only two options. If you're not a Christian, you're an enemy of Christ. You may be a very nice person, but you need to be reconciled to the son of God. Now, moving on. Jesus's reign. Jesus's reign we spoke earlier about this inaugurated eschatology, this thing that has begun, but it is not yet fully finished. Jesus' reign is what began at Jesus' inauguration to the Davidic throne described in Acts chapter 2. This is when he was crowned king. Peter describes it in Acts 2.29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. That he is dead and buried and that his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, David's throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This, Jesus, God raised up, of whom we are all witnesses Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this, which you now see and hear. These people in Pentecost, they all see the effect of the fruit uh, of the Holy Spirit being poured out. They see it, and Peter is referencing that. He's saying that's what's going on right now. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Again, Psalm 110.1, it's referencing the same text. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So Peter uses this same text to make this same appeal, this gospel appeal that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the father. You crucified him. You need to repent. But we already talked about that. So let's move forward and address for our presbyterian friends verse 39. For this promises to you and to your children and all to our who are who, all and to all who are afar off. I'm sorry. English is hard sometimes. As many as our Lord our God will call. What is this referencing? Well, it's not referencing the whole like you and your kids and your grandkids and their grandkids and their, grandkids and their you know, it's not talking about that. It's talking about Jews and Gentiles. So remember, Peter is standing there, probably the steps of the temple, preaching to a large crowd of Jews. And he's saying, this promise is for you and your people, your children. If you would call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. This is available for all of you, for any of you. But it's also available for the other people. It's available for the outsiders, for the Gentiles, for those who are far off, who at this stage in the game have not yet heard the message, not in in large scope anyway. There's only a small handful of Gentiles who have been saved up to this point. But what he's saying is that this promise that if you believe in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, that you will be saved and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is available both for Jews and Gentiles, even though it's still Acts 2 and Acts 10 hasn't happened yet. It's a foreshadowing of the promise from Acts 10 of the gospel going to the Gentiles. We know that this is the point of what Peter is saying because he helps us understand it with his final words of the verse. He qualifies what he just said for the promises to you and your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. Those words, as many as the Lord our God will call, that qualifies what he just said. It's not saying this promise is for people that God will not call. No. It's for anyone that the Lord our God will call. So, to my Baptist friends, who hopefully you all are, this verse does not belong to the Presbyterians. The promise is for those whom our God will call. Those who God calls is Seen with our eyeballs, we see the ones that God calls through seeing those who repent. And those who repent are the ones who receive baptism. Notice, the only ones baptized here are those who repent. So you don't have an unrepentant baby. Baby Andrew, for example, trust me, he is not repentant. <laughs> He's also not a Christian. He has no interest in family devotions. No interest in prayer. No, he likes music, but not because it's Christian. He just likes music in general. But you start to pray and you hold his hand and he has no interest in it. Why? Because he's not been born again yet. The people in this verse who are baptized are the ones who repent. And this is available for you and for your kids And for everybody else, those who are far off. This is available for both Israelites and for Gentiles. Let's keep moving. So that was verse 25. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Verse 26. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Revelation 21, verse 11 through 15, tells us that at the end of the age, death itself will be destroyed. Verse 11, uh, Revelation twenty one eleven says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Notice verse 14. Death itself is cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. What does that mean? Is that, an, is that a support for annihilation? I got a really nasty email this week from someone. None of you, I trust. An anonymous email from someone saying that I'm watching you and you should not be misrepresenting annihilationism like that and universalism and that they believe in hell too. I, I guess they believe in hell, I just don't have, think anybody goes there. Um, I stand by what I said. But this does not support annihilationism. We call it eternal life and eternal death. But Jesus will destroy death. It will be cast into the lake of fire. We don't know exactly what that means, but it's not a positive thing. It's not something you want to experience. If you don't believe me, find somebody who has a cigarette lighter and light it and stick your finger in the flame for like a second. That's not a positive experience. Yesterday it was a little bit cold in my office. So I turned on my little space heater that has like a fan and it blows hot air under my desk so that like it can be warm, like where my feet are and stuff. And, um, my wonderful son, came into my office, and he just has to mess with everything. And so he grabs the space heater, and don't worry, Makita, it's okay. He, he's, he's fine. You look concerned, but he's fine. But he grabbed the space heater. It's not that hot. And he, he's like, puts his hand on the front of it, and then he pulls his hand away. Why? Because it's hot. Did he burn himself? No. It just made his fingers a little warm. And he was like, oh, that's hot. Well, hell is hotter than that. Let's keep moving, verse 27. He has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. So this is the distinction between Jesus and his creation. Putting all things under Jesus does not mean that Jesus is being put under. Rather, Jesus is the one with his feet propped up and all things are under his feet footstool, as it were. Um, Here, this word, uh, they apply to Christ only, for they are more far-reaching, for as the context shows, they include everything except the Father himself. All things is emphatic. There is an interesting change of tense. He has put, those words, has put, is in the aorist tense, pointing us to a single once-for-all act of subjection. But, Has been put under him is in the perfect tense. It includes the thought of the permanent state of subjection. Who put is aorist again, pointing to the same action as that of the first verb. Paul's point then is that God the Father has given to the Son unlimited sovereignty over all of creation. This, of course, does not involve any infringement on the Father's own sovereignty. For those who have been reading up on classical theism lately, uh, don't be alarmed. I believe in inseparable operations, which is the idea that, as Jesus says, um, what what the Father is doing, I am doing. That the Father and Son and Spirit have one united will and that they do the things that they do in complete harmony, in complete agreement with each other. There is no schism within the Trinity as far as the wills go. So when Jesus does a thing, the Father's doing a thing, and the Spirit is doing a thing. That's represented by Jesus' resurrection himself, because both the Father raises him, all three. The Father raises the Son, the Son raises the Son, and the Spirit raises the Son. That's just one case study on inseparable operations. When you are saved, you are saved by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All three persons working in complete harmony. It's not like, God, the Father chose you to be saved, and the Son was like, no, 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 no. I didn't want her No, they they have the same plan, they have the same will, they have the same operation. Even though there might be different roles, as it were, the father choosing, the son dying, the spirit indwelling, but they're working in perfect unity. Let's look at verse twenty-eight. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. This verse may cause you to think, wait a second, Andy, not even a minute ago you said you agree with classical theism. But this verse says that the Son will be subjected to the Father, so this must mean that classical theism is wrong and subordinationism is right and that it's not heresy, or if it is heresy, then heresy is right. Right? Well, no, not so fast. Two different commentaries help us with this. The delicate theological balance in the Trinitarian involvement in our salvation that Paul has already shown in 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7 should alert us that these verses are describing, or that what these verses are describing, is not the ontological relation between the Father and the Son and the being of God. In other words, this verse is not describing the essence of divinity, where there's a hierarchy or an eternal relation of authority. And so- no, there's nothing eternal about this. This is what is taking place in space and time post-incarnation. After Jesus takes on flesh. But the incarnate obedient son's mission as the second man who will subject all of God's enemies, including death, to the lordship of the triune God, and then as a man will remit into the father's hand the authority given him for his mission as the messianic king. So think with me in terms of either movies or video games or some kind of a cool story situation. You have a king, you have a father. And that father commissions his son, hey, I need you to go into this faraway land and I need you to conquer our enemies and the son says sure thing dad so he goes out and he conquers the enemies and he brings back some captives he killed a bunch of other captives he brings back all the loot and he even rescues the prisoners that were from their own people and so he comes back in great victory and he is rejoicing to present to his father the spoils of his war something along those lines So let me reread this. The incarnate obedient son's mission as the second man who will subject all of God's enemies, including death, to the lordship of the triune God. And then as man will remit into the father's hands the authority given him for his mission as the messianic king. So he's returning with the spoils of his war and saying, father, I did it. Here you go. Gregory of Nazianzus, who died in the year 390, captures the true relationship of father to son in pointing out that as the son subjects all to the father, so does the father to the son, the one by his work, the other by his good pleasure. We must emphatically deny any notion of subordinationism in the Trinity itself, which would lead, clearly lead into heresy, as Gregory of Nazianzus, Cyril of Alexandria, and Augustine all understood. To read this passage, which concerns the mediatorial office of Christ in his incarnation for our salvation, to read this back into the eternal relations of Father and Son in the Holy Trinity would be to overthrow the Trinity, close quote, period, or period, close quote. So when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. What is the point of all of this? If that was a little deep for you, I understand and I'm sympathetic to that. The point of all of this is that he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet and he will do these things in order that God may be all in all. What is that talking about? That's talking about the glory of God in the defeat of death. So Jesus defeats death and he comes back after his mission to the earth. He returns to the father, having successfully accomplished this and it will be played out in space and time. And eventually it will all be finally finished and realized for real Not just in a mystical or spiritual sense, but in that action, it will be all to the glory of God. Um, There was a thing I was thinking about talking about, and it didn't make it into my notes, but I'm thinking about it right now, so I think we should go there. Our text references Adam. And references Jesus as the second Adam Um, a number of years ago, uh, probably 10 or 12 years ago, I was driving on a long road trip by myself in the middle of the night. And I was thinking about things and long about like maybe upstate New York, maybe in the New England region. A scenario popped into my head, and I pulled out my phone and started recording, and just started talking through uh, basically what would effectively become a book idea. But then, when I hit um, save the recording, it said error, file corrupted, so it didn't record it. So, um, it goes like this: Imagine with me, Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve in the garden. They've they've been created. And you know how in Genesis it says that God comes to walk with them in the cool of the day. So the beginning, uh, early in the morning, uh, our triune God comes and walks with Adam and Eve. And they, um, they walk and they talk with God every day. And um, one day, the first couple, let's just say Adam for simplicity's sake, Adam looks up at God and says, So, you came with us and we walked together in the garden today. And you did that yesterday, and we walked and we talked, and the day before, and the day before, and the day before, and I don't really know what happened before that, because it's all just black in my mind. But what about tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day? Now, pause. So that's our scenario for this entire project. Now, in that pause, if it were this way, which we know it's not, but if it were this way in that pause, after the scenario is posed to God by Adam, he says, what does tomorrow hold And the day after and the day after and the day after across the mind of God flashes the entire plan of redemption. So what God knows is that there's going to be a fall. In fact, it might even be tomorrow. So tomorrow, a serpent's going to enter into the garden. That serpent is going to tempt Eve, and Adam will be standing there watching this whole thing play out, and he's going to let it happen. And then she's going to say, oh, you should eat it too, and he then is faced with this choice. So do I um, choose her, or do I choose God? And then he's going to choose her, and then plunge all of humanity into sin. And then this will lead to this conflict between their, their sons. And the one son will kill the other one. And then he's going to have to run away and be in hiding. And then they're going to have another son. And then they're going to have a whole bunch more kids. And then we're going to see the story of these descendants in the book of Genesis. And it's going to be ugly. It's going to be messy. There's going to be a guy named Noah. There's going to be a boat. There's going to be a global flood. There's going to be um, Joseph in Egypt. And the children of Israel, this nation that will develop. And they will be um, just... It, bad trouble, but then God will rescue them and deliver them. And then this nation will be wandering in the wilderness for, what, 400 years? A very long time. They will be wandering in the wilderness, suffering and experiencing all sorts of hardships, but then the Lord will deliver them and bring them out of this suffering into the promised land. And then they will continue to rebel and continue to sin against him. And then they will say, give us a king. So he gives them a king. And then the king turns out to not be so great either. After the judges and there's kings and there's prophets. And it's all just not really going super well. Then the enemies from the, what we call Middle East today, um, they're going to come and capture them and lead them off into uh, Babylon and captivity. This whole sequence is, is just lots of, Drama, lots of death, lots of destruction, and rescue. and then they are um, brought back into the land, and then there's these 400 silent years. And then after those silent years, uh, the Lord appears to a little girl named Mary, and he's like, "Hey, um, you're gonna have a baby." And she's like, how can this be? Because I'm a virgin. And then he says, well, the spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you shall conceive. And this child will be born from the Holy Spirit. And then she's just like blown away by this. And then uh, an angel appears to her fiance, her soon to be husband, and tells him the same thing. And this is an impossible situation. How is this going to be? Well, then this child is born and lives and dies a barbaric death. But then rises on the third day and he has this group of followers who are all kind of sketchy. They've got lots of issues. And then those followers, um, they all deny him and they reject him and they run away. But then he rises from the dead and fills them with the spirit. And then they are emboldened for ministry, and then this mission is established and described in the book of Acts, and then that book uh, will describe how the gospel spreads to the whole known world. And then fast forward some more centuries, there's going to be people sitting on the other side of the world in this place called America in this city called New York gathered uh, in in a building on East 62nd Street, and they're going to be from all kinds of other places, and we don't even have time to talk about how the message of the gospel would get to those places either. And so this whole scenario in this situation that is described in flashing across the mind of God when Adam says, so tomorrow what happens? And the day after, what happens? And then the triune God looks down at Adam in the garden, and he just answers with one word. "With What does tomorrow hold? Well, with a smile, God looks at him and says, glory. So, that's the idea. The idea is that this whole thing, this whole plan of redemption, is the glory and majesty of God. The weightiness of God. The wonder of God, that is what is displayed in God's plan of redemption. And that is the purpose of Jesus's death. The death of death is for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you have given us your word and spirit and that you have sent your only begotten son into the world to save your people from their sins We thank you that Jesus did not die. He he did not stay dead, but he rose from the dead. And in his death and resurrection, he has defeated death's ultimate power. And he is displaying his glory in the world through his saving of sinners And that one day when all of this is completed, when this whole program is wrapped up, it will be unto the praise and honor and glory of God. And it will display for angels and demons alike as it is being played out. And in the final judgment, it will display for the entire cosmos to see the glory and wisdom and sovereignty of God. I pray that those who are still enemies of Christ would repent and believe on the name of Jesus in order to be saved from their sins. That they too can be unto the praise of his glory in their salvation. I pray that this service today would be helpful to that end. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.